Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. I am delighted to be joined by author and urban policy expert Diana Lind. She is currently the Communications and Publications Director at the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Prior to this, she served as the Editor-in-Chief of Next City, a leading urbanist website and nonprofit, eventually becoming the organization's Executive Director. She is the author of Brooklyn Modern, Architecture, Interiors, and Design, and her most recent book, Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing, was described by the New York Times as an invaluable resource that provides a new and revelatory window on the challenges of housing in America today. I am delighted to be speaking with Diana today. Welcome to On Cities. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm delighted to be here as well. Great. Well, actually, um, I came across your book, Brave New Home, when I was organizing a course on affordable housing at the University of Miami School of Architecture, where I am a professor. And I can confidently state that it is a must read for anyone who is interested in the topic of housing in America today. But before we delve into the themes of the book, in preparing for this show, I read that you received a degree in creative writing from Columbia. Were you always a lover of words and storytelling? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that books and reading are just so essential to being able to kind of analyze who you are, your world. You know, I read to my sons every night and I feel like that's like one of the most important times that we have. And it just um, reinforces for me just how much I care about stories and storytelling. So uh, yes, I, I did an MFA in creative writing at Columbia and uh, was really at that point sort of thinking I wanted to be a, a novelist, you know, write the great American novel, all of that. Um, but at the same time, actually, I was working at Architectural Record magazine. And um, this was sort of the early 2000s after 9-11, when I think um, there was uh, a focus on architecture that there hadn't been before, especially this was sort of the architecture moment um, with, you know, big buildings kind of revitalizing cities. Um, and I, I really feel like the, the, the journalism and architecture side of me kind of went out in that experience. I really, uh, I love writing, but it's a very solitary action. And I love um, working with the magazine, a whole crew of people. Uh, and so that really, that experience kind of changed my life and trajectory. Um, and I still write fiction and we can, you know, talk a little bit more about that later, but um, I feel like, uh, you know, just sort of in terms of being able to kind of interpret the world and write about it, I'm just so much more engaged through uh, journalism really and nonfiction. So it's an instance where a kind of internship in an institution like Architectural Record can change the direction of a, of a writing career. I think that's interesting for a lot of students that might be listening to the podcast. Um, so maybe we can delve into Brave New Home a bit. Um, in the book, you make the case that the single family home model, which is really the predominant 
housing type in America is broken. And uh, why do you say this? And how did you arrive or how did we arrive to this point? Sure. So I would say that the single family home as the dominant model in the U.S. in terms of our housing options uh, is really problematic. It's problematic for social, economic, and environmental reasons. Um, And it's not to say that there aren't communities that are lovely places to live, that people can't have fulfilling lives and love their single family homes. Oftentimes when I talk about, you know, the problems with single family homes, people will uh, immediately respond and say, you know, I live in a house and I'm really happy and I can walk around my neighborhood. And it's like, you know, that's great for you. Um, But in many cases, this sort of dominance of single family homes has really um, created a lot of social, economic and environmental challenges. So sort of to delve into those different issues. First off, economic issues. Um, You know, the single family home, if you live in um, in a city where really your only housing option is going to be a single family home and the zoning in that um, community really requires a certain housing size, oftentimes there are minimum housing sizes and minimum lot sizes. Uh, you're going to be stuck at a particular price point. So uh, if that's a 2,500 square foot home on a quarter acre lot, um, for a lot of people, that's just frankly unaffordable. Uh, And so single family homes are really the the least affordable housing type that we have. uh, And they're very much um, sort of you know, at a range of um, of sizes, but but nonetheless larger than the housing that a lot of um, households actually need. And so that gets to sort of the the social side of things, which is that the demographics of who lives in the U.S. now is very different than it was in the 1950s when single family homes really kind of got their um, became that sort of dominant uh, housing type and in the post-war period. Um, and so, you know, the the average household today is not that heteronormative family of four that we tend to kind of think of as um, the, the family that lives in single family homes. We have something like a quarter of Americans who are living uh, as singles, so living alone. Um, we ha- still have, you know, a very high divorce rate of, you know, in and around 50%. Um, so families that are living um, oftentimes, you know, in ways where you might have five people one day and just one person the next day. Um, you also have families that are, you know, much smaller. People are having uh, many fewer children. It's, uh, you know, we're at the point where uh, having just one child is increasingly popular or people are delaying or not having children at all. Um, and then we have an aging population, which, um also has very different kinds of housing needs. And, and in fact, for many old people, sort of a, a older people having um, a single family home is just um, too big. So there's this demographic mismatch for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talk about that housing uh, style of housing, where you have um, just residential neighborhoods without commercial or other kinds of uses in the neighborhood, at a social level, what you end up having are a lot of people who are often driving to their home, you know, going into their house, getting back into the car, not having that kind of social interaction, not having places to walk to. Um, and it can be isolating for people. 
Um, so that's sort of a, the, the social side of things. And then finally, to get to the environmental issue, uh, you know, we have lived in a car-based society now for the past century. And I really think I was just looking at an article in the New York Times about, you know, what are things that people are going to cringe about in the future? And someone wrote, uh, you know, driving a car everywhere. And I really do think that this next century is going to be one where environmentally, even if we are in, um, you know, in electric cars, I think that um, the kind of development patterns that cars create in our um, in our communities are really going to be uh, they're 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 not going to be uh, encouraged in the same way that they are today and so if you have single family homes that are on lots that are uh, you know each a quarter acre let's just say um, it's going to be very difficult for that community to be a walkable place um, where people can get to their daily needs without having uh, to use a car. And so uh, from the environmental standpoint, also these, these housing types are really also taking up a tremendous amount of space um, and pushing people into environmentally sensitive areas, whether there are areas that are more prone to flooding, fires, and so forth. So there are, going, there are a lot of environmental challenges with this style of housing. Um, so I'll you know, just lay out those as being kind of some of the, the social, economic, and environmental challenges. And I think a lot of what I try to talk about in the book is that these are, these are challenges that we can also address with interesting solutions as well. Yeah, you, you say a lot in that response, and we're really living with the consequences of, let's say, policies, first and foremost, that decentralized our cities following World War II, um, which then through, you know, different initiatives promoted a kind of rise in, you know, the single family residential, sort of detached single family residential. And I think what you're pointing to is, it's not that 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 the single family residential is inherently um, bad, as you as you mentioned. There's many out there that are listening that might be living in communities where the single family house is dominant. But I think you're making an argument that we are a more diverse society. We're a society facing economic challenges as well as environmental challenges that were not in place in the 1950s. So how can we expand beyond this kind of prevalent model? And actually, this is what I think. Um, this is where I think your book is so powerful because you not only offer uh, a concise and accessible history, let's say 20th century history of housing in America, but you offer tangible solutions or at least new housing models that we can begin to think about for the future of housing in America. So I was wondering if you could point to a few of these examples that you illustrate in the book, and perhaps we can discuss them in greater detail. Sure. I think it's funny that you mentioned history because many of the solutions that I talk about in the book are housing solutions that have existed for a very long time, uh, but that really got pushed aside in the effort to, you know, to sort of mainstream the housing um, around single family homes. So, uh, for example, duplexes were a very common kind of housing um, in a lot of American cities for much of the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
it's a great way for people to create more density in a, uh, a community and density and the benefits of density would be uh, namely that you can have uh, more people living close to amenities. It creates more opportunities for walkability or transit. Um, but thinking about, you know, just a duplex and what it could do in terms of the economic challenges that we're facing around housing. People could buy a duplex, live in one unit, rent out the other unit, uh, and build equity that way. People can use one unit for themselves and also house loved ones, which is a huge need, um, especially with an aging population, or especially think about it in a time of a recession when you might have some loved ones who need um, housing. Uh, it's a great way to also build that kind of social infrastructure there where, you know, I included a story in the in the book about a family where uh, the family lives in one unit and their uh, grandmother lives in uh, the other unit of a duplex. And this enables the parents to be able to go out and go out on a date without having to find a babysitter. It also means that their uh, children have really great access to their um, grandmother and, and are able to learn and experience a relationship with her, but it's also fantastic for that grandmother to have connection um, with her family and it's a way for her family to check in on her and make sure that she's doing well. So there's just so many different kinds of benefits from, you know, let's just say the example of a duplex. Um, I talk also about things like co-living, which I think uh, is, you know, not as common a housing type as it could potentially be. But the idea around co-living is essentially that you have people living in their own private apartments, but having shared amenities and spaces. And so this could be framed in a lot of different ways. Uh, the kind of co-living trend that was really prevalent when I wrote this book a couple of years ago um, has changed, I think, a lot more now away from um, uh, sort of the, the model where people are sharing, um, you know, happy hours and yoga classes and communal meals and so forth and has become a little bit more like a standardized apartment building with just um, you know, some shared spaces. But I think of co-living as being a, a really um, interesting example that, again, harkens back to the ways that people lived a century ago when we used to have apartment hotels where people could, um, you know, share in a public dining space and enjoy having uh, some help with their domestic duties like um, cleaners or, um, uh, you know, again, having cooking and things like that. So I think that that is a really interesting option, especially when you think about people potentially, like, let's just say this new trend of digital nomads who are less tied to their, uh, to one particular city, being able to experience a new city in a way that doesn't have as much friction of having to sign up for a whole long lease. Co-living spaces can be a great way for people to kind of connect with a new community. Um, and again, I think is an, an interesting option as a way to address some of the social isolation that is such a huge issue for people today. Um, yeah, actually, in reading your book, I, I I didn't know this, but I in in when in the chapters where you were talking about the solutions, you pointed out that actually places like Singapore, for instance, uh, will pay you to actually live near your elderly relatives, essentially incentivizing um, the uh, or or with the belief that 
promoting these uh, stronger social networks actually improve, you know, the health of uh, of the relatives and and that's overall a benefit to society. So, uh, you know, I, I think the U.S. really um, lacks any type of initiatives promoting, let's say, multi-generational housing, which I think you were alluding to earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So so I I found that particular example interesting. Um, but I, I, you also speak about, um, because I think some of the things you're pointing to are, you know, denser urban patterns, right? When you talk about the duplexes, you're talking about um, maybe multi-generational housing. When you talk about the possibility mm-hmm. of living near, you know, kind of extended family. You also spoke about, um, let's say, the tiny house. Mm-hmm. And and the ADUs, um, particularly the ADUs, seeming like like low hanging fruit, you know, for many cities. But yet, there's quite a number of challenges in 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 implementing ADUs. Um, maybe you could define what they are for those in the audience that might not know what they are, and maybe say a little bit about them. Sure. So accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, as they're known, are. Backyard cottages, in-law suites, grandma cottages, um, you know, au pair suites, they had all sorts of names over uh, over time. But these would really be kind of a smaller unit that is attached in some fashion to the main unit of the house. So you could find accessory dwelling units that are um, in, you know, a backyard cottage that is part of the par- property of um, a standalone single family home, but you could also find them as being, um, you know, tacked onto a row house or whatnot. Um, accessory dwelling units and tiny homes, I think, are a really exciting uh, housing solution because they address some of the affordability issues that are so prevalent in cities uh, by providing a a a new diversity to the housing options in a particular neighborhood. So if you're in a neighborhood that has all single family homes and you start to have some accessory dwelling units, you're really opening up housing in that neighborhood to a person who wouldn't otherwise probably, you know, be able to afford or want to live in a, in a single family home. Um, And these smaller units, they are often somewhere between 200 and 600 square feet or so. They're sort of perfect for people who uh, might need a more affordable housing option or, for example, you know, in talking about multi-generational housing, it's certainly been used as an example of the way for families to have, you know, younger children or older grandparents live uh, adjacent to with some privacy and distance, but also connected to the main um, family and their single family home. Uh, and I think that accessory dwelling units can also provide um, a way for, you know, we've seen in different cities as a they've been used as a way to kind of incentivize and encourage affordable housing in, in communities that might otherwise not exist. So I give an example of a project in Los Angeles where um, accessory dwelling units were being built by a nonprofit with the idea that if they helped to build an accessory dwelling unit in your backyard, you would in turn rent that out to um, someone with a Section H voucher. And um, this was a really interesting way for a city to think about how to encourage building affordable housing that wasn't um, you know, a big housing project, which oftentimes doesn't actually get built because of community resistance to building, you know, affordable housing in mass, but accessory dwelling units, if they're 
really positioned as affordable housing could be a way to sort of decentralize that affordable housing across um, many different houses and sort of not disturb the character of a particular neighborhood. I'd say one of the last interesting things about accessory dwelling units are some of the ways in which entrepreneurs have thought about uh, taking you know, certain aspects of the accessory dwelling unit and um, making them easy to, to purchase and to also um, sort of gain some financial reward from. So for example, um, there, are, there are a lot of startups that are helping to build uh, accessory dwelling units that are prefabricated, that can easily be built in a backyard um, inexpensively uh, and you know, with less time and, and, and cost than a traditional home. So that's sort of exciting. But then there are also some startups that are looking at you know, ways for them to build the accessory dwelling unit. And in return for sharing the rent, you eventually pay off the cost of the accessory dwelling unit and eventually own it yourself, but you actually get, you know, this, this startup to kind of build it for you in your backyard. So I think the key here is finding ways to make them more accessible to, you know, your average homeowner who doesn't have the construction savvy um, of figuring out how to design and build their own accessory dwelling unit and to also be able to find a way to actually afford it um, and to, to, actually get it built. I mean, it, they just, it seems like such an obvious, you know, and straightforward solution. And like you said, it seems like a small solution, but if, if repeated, you know, on multiple thousands of lots throughout the cities, you can see how it could make an enormous impact. So, but why isn't more of it being done? I mean, yeah. the, what are the challenges to implementing ADUs? There, there are a couple of them. And I would say that actually what the, the first challenge was zoning. In many places, accessory dwelling units are not permitted by the local zoning. And in places where it, the zoning has been reformed in California, for example, the number of permitted accessory dwelling units has skyrocketed. So it's been tremendously popular. Uh, so the zoning is a huge issue. And for example, I live in Philadelphia. We tried to pass zoning reform to allow accessory dwelling units throughout the city. And what ended up happening was only certain uh, city council districts actually in allowed them. So when you have a situation like that, where it's like you can't even build them throughout the city, you can't get some of the uh, economies of scale of actually build finding um, a community of people who can actually build the accessory dwelling unit. So people who start to specialize in building them, whether they're designers or contractors, so forth, uh, it becomes very difficult for people to actually, inexpensive for people to build them. And so then what ends up happening is that the people who are building accessory dwelling units are oftentimes the wealthiest and most savvy and able to, to build them. And they're not really building them for affordable housing in those cases. So I think the key is to have zoning reform that makes it possible to build them anywhere. Um, and then additionally, to think about what are some of the financial tools, products, support systems that need to be in place to actually ensure that regular homeowners are able to build uh, accessory dwelling units. Yeah, I mean, I think for anybody listening that is interested in this, you pointed out uh, some success stories with like Dana Cuff uh, uh, out in California, mm -hmm. um, which I think, um, you know, really he 
they 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 actively got involved in changing policy. And I think for designers out there, I think it's important because, you know, you need to have the infrastructure the that allows you to do it, as you said. I think in Miami, this is a, a huge challenge for us because in most places it's not uh, allowed. Um, and then we also have the added challenge of if you do add housing, then the kind of stringent parking requirements. Um, so then that opens up not just the questions of housing, but in the questions of infrastructure, right? So um, we make our cities denser, but then let's provide, you know, many means of transit that don't require everybody to have to have a car because we know that, in fact, there's large parts of the population that can't afford cars. So, you know, I think it's a very, it seems like a very small you know, solution, but it opens up much larger themes. Um, I mean, I think towards the end of your book, you have a, a fascinating chapter entitled Health and Housing. And we're going to take a short break right now. But uh, when we return, we're going to talk about the inextricable link, or at least the argument that you make between the quality of our housing and the quality of our health. And so please do not miss um, Diana's thoughts on this. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. So right before the break, uh, we had been talking with Diana Lind about 
not only the history of housing in America, particularly the 20th century history of housing in America, but about um, the solutions that she offers for possibly thinking about how we can rethink housing in America moving forward in her wonderful book, Brave New Home. Um, right before the break, I pointed out that you have a fascinating chapter in the book called Health and Housing, where you basically um, inextricably link the quality of our housing to the quality of our health. But you also point to a number of really sort of entrepreneurial models that are rising up in the country where to a certain degree, hospitals are becoming housing developers and a whole host of you know, uh, relationships are occurring to be able to think about new ways of, of building housing. So can you tell us what you mean by health-driven housing? Yes. So what I mean by health-driven housing is that there's the potential here for housing to think about people's health, you know, developers of housing to think about people's health as not an afterthought, not as, um, you know, unconnected to the housing, but actually a an amenity for the housing um, as a key selling point for the housing, um, as a, a reason for the housing to even exist. So what I mean by this is, you know, your average house, if we're talking about the single family home, um, you know, again, going back to this sort of imaginary example uh, somewhere in suburbia where you are um, driving for most of your daily needs and so forth, uh, is it's not going to encourage uh, walkability, which is incredibly important for people's health. There's a there's increasing amount of research about you know how important it is to get ten thousand steps a day, um, and uh, for all the other benefits of walking, like being able to have spontaneous interactions with people or access um, your daily um, commercial corridor and so forth. Um, that housing is also not going to be thinking about, you know, where you're getting your food from. Um, it's not going to be um, concerned with how you are connecting with nature and so forth. Uh, Health-driven housing by contrast, is really going to be um, housing that takes into account, you know, um, how this person is going to get their exercise, their social needs met, their um, dietary needs met, their connection to nature met. And so this could, you know, this idea of health-driven housing could really range from um, anything like, you know, there are an increasing number of um, communities, like I gave the example in the book of Serenby, which is one of these um, communities that's really about, um, you know, having a nature trail, a community supported agriculture of having, um, ins ensuring that people are able to access their daily needs by walking, um, encouraging uh, social connection through community events. It's really a holistic kind of community that's really oriented around um, a sort of whole self that um, could be a healthier whole self. Um, that's like one kind of example that could range to a completely different other type of model, which is, um, you know, thinking about how um, hospitals could better serve 
the community of homeless people in their um, community through actually building housing um, rather than trying to just service them in a an emergency room or why why would uh, sorry to interrupt you but why would a hospital want to build housing for homeless Sure. So, you know, hospitals um, spend a tremendous amount of money on uh, on helping homeless people in their community. They often come in through the emergency room. Uh, they have nowhere to go after being seen in the emergency room. They're often frequently going to the emergency room, even for non-emergencies, because they have no other um, uh, health support system. And, um, and oftentimes, because they have nowhere else to go, they'll often stay in the emergency room or in the hospital setting for a long period of time. So this is really expensive for um, hospitals. They're not getting reimbursed by that person's you know, private insurance, so forth. And so actually, many hospitals have realized it's cheaper for them to actually build permanent housing for people who are homeless um, and to provide um, health support, a health support system there in that housing than it is to actually serve those people in a, um, in a hospital setting. And that frees up that hospital's hospital beds for other people um, who uh, that hospital could end up serving. So that's, you know, it's a really interesting business case, not to mention the um, fact that, you know, many hospitals are nonprofits and have a sort of social um uh, imperative in mind. And so uh, it kind of can also align with the mission of that organization to help ensure that people are, are healthier. And, you know, we really think about there are these things called, you know, social determinants of health. Um, and housing is one of those critical aspects, which is just, um, you know, the quality, the safety of housing can really help determine whether someone is healthy or not. And hospitals are recognizing that housing is, in fact, it's it's a prescription, you know, that they can write in this, in effect. Well, you know, in this chapter, you talk about anchor institution theory, which I'll let you describe. Um, but you give the example because I think, you know, the homeless community is certainly one sector, um, which is at the extreme end of housing, right? Um, and but you you mentioned the Denver Housing Authority and their partnership with Denver Health. Um, and and how they are creatively pairing to try to make inroads into the affordable housing sort of challenges of Denver. Um, and it's not only servicing, let's say, the homeless, but actually looking at a much broader sector of society. Can you, I guess, can you tell us what you mean by anchor institution theory? Um, and then also maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about that example um, of in Denver. Sure. So anchor institutions would be things like universities or healthcare systems, which have a huge footprint in any given community and are very unlikely to ever leave because they have such a tie to uh, that particular um, community. So as a result of that, because they are not going to pick up and move, like say a company might um because they want to access a different, you know, workforce or um, so forth. Anchor institutions then really have to, whenever they hit a certain kind of challenge, figure out how to deal with um, their their assets and and how to best maximize them. So, um, for a, a place like Denver with a um, you know a healthcare organization, um, they 
you know, are thinking about how could you then, you know, take advantage of the real estate that they have and reimagine it as housing. Um, and it's not, you know, just happening in Denver. This is happening in a lot of other places where um, healthcare institutions, there's a lot of consolidation happening where hospitals are merging and so forth. They have real estate that they could reimagine as um, housing for, as you mentioned, not just homeless, the homeless, but other people who might have healthcare needs. Um, and the exciting thing is thinking about how can um, there be creative, creative funding models to actually ensure that this um, housing gets built uh, in New Jersey, um, a, a financial entity is working with a bunch of different hospitals to help them build housing in their communities as a way to address, again, not just the homeless, but also other people who are frequent emergency room um, visitors. And, um, and thinking about this as a way to, um, to, to kind of you know, enhance these communities. I mean, there's there's a lot of other examples that I give in the book. Like, for example, um, in Philadelphia, um, the Children's Hospital here has worked with um, the the uh, you know surrounding community to uh, think about ways to uh, help with children's asthma by developing different interventions of improving the um, interior spaces of people's homes. And it's sort of, you know, you think about, well, they're, you know, ripping up rugs and um, improving the ventilation in this home and trying to address asthma in these um, kinds of, you know, households where there's, you know, a lot of prevalent asthma. Like, why wouldn't uh, a healthcare institution actually start thinking about building housing from scratch? And then, yeah, I mean, I I think what you're suggesting. I mean, when I hear your response, I mean, you're you're suggesting that, for example, universities, which are large scale non for profits, and hospitals that are large scale non for profits, might become really important players in this arena because they can develop in a way that maybe an average um, for profit developer would not. And uh, oftentimes, you know, being a practitioner, a designer who is actually working in affordable housing right now, I can tell you that, you know, the profit margins are not there. And so oftentimes, um, you know, developers sway away from this and, and even talented designers sway away from this. So I think what you're suggesting is that there could be, you know, different ways to develop this housing if we kind of tap into some of these institutions that are really committed to our cities. And, you know, I'm excited when I hear you say that because, you know, Miami's got a housing crisis. We've got a major hospital. You know, we've got a lot of city-owned land that the city is unclear what to do with. So, I mean, I, I think that there's some real, you offer some real best practices and even some pilot programs that I think could apply throughout the country. Um so, so at least I, I find it to be very exciting. Let me let me maybe return to the core of the book, which talks about again the challenges um, of the single family house. And you know, today the single family house is still the greatest asset or vehicle to wealth for most American families. Your book promotes a greater sense of community in housing solutions. But how do you think we can create individual wealth opportunities within these more communal living models? So I, I would just first start off by saying that I think we've assumed that people accrue and develop a lot of wealth through their housing. And, and we 
that is an assumption that oftentimes I, I, I just sort of want to unpack that data. You know, oftentimes homeowners, um, the people who can afford to put a, a down money on a down payment, um, ending up wealthier at the end of the day um, is not very surprising. Oftentimes you have to have money to make money. Um, and so I think that, you know, and I'm looking at the housing market right now, a lot of housing has gone up by, you know, 40% in the past three years. That's just, it's, we know that that's unsustainable. And I, I wonder what's going to end up happening over um, in the future. We may not see the same kind of crash that we saw in 2008, which utterly wiped out tremendous amounts of equity for people. Um, we may not see that kind of um, scale of, of damage, but I could also envision a, a future in which, um, you know, housing prices actually don't decline, but the cost of actually owning homes at these, you know, extremely high levels is um, incredibly difficult for people. And as a result, um, you know, some of those benefits of potentially, you know, owning housing just aren't there. And I would also just say that I think we're also in this transition period beyond, um, you know, the, the, extremely expensive coastal city where, you know, new housing markets are kind of springing up. Um, and I think we're just going to have a different kind of uh, level of uh, demand in a lot of these places that are not going to see future appreciation. This is just me personally guessing here. But anyways, so I just would uh, first just caution that I don't know that um, housing is the boon to everyone that it is assumed to be. Um, in terms of thinking about other ways to build wealth. I would say also we've spent a century perfecting that, you know, that mortgage product. And we have spent comparatively very little time thinking about, you know, how, what are other ways to actually build wealth for people? Um, you could decouple the uh, relationship between your individual home and your investment. So like shout out to um, folks like Eve Picker, who runs um, a company called Small Change, which allows people to invest in real estate projects around the country. Um, you can invest small amounts of money into these um, housing projects. They're often very innovative developments. Um, and it's a way for you to invest in real estate, but to not have it to necessarily be your own home. Um, there are ways for people to invest in, you know, developments like community land trusts, which are not um, as, you know, prevalent and common um, these days. But, you know, you look at where we were 20 years ago and they've become increasingly uh, common. And I could imagine that in the coming decades, we're going to see more ways for people to actually invest in um, their neighborhoods uh, in, in kind of co-developed projects as well as retail uh, and really be investors in their neighborhoods rather than just their individual homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's uh, I think that that gives us a lot to think about. Um, I, I, I could keep talking about your book um, <laughs> on and on and on. And again, uh, I'm going to advocate for all those listening um, to really go out and uh, purchase this book and read it. Um, but beyond your books, you have a very busy um, life, not only as, you know, the director of uh, communications and the publica publications director for the Penn Institute for Urban Research, um, as well as a number of other activities. Um, but I was interested in knowing a little bit more about your role in this um, in this group and also maybe what 
projects excite you right now um, that you're working on? If you could say a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, I've known the Penn Institute for Urban Research for about 20 years when I ran Next City, actually, our offices were first in um, the Penn Institute for Urban Research's conference room, and then we graduated from there into our own offices. So I've known um, the two faculty directors who run uh, the program for a number of years. What is exciting about the work that we do is um, we're, you know, a a university-based research institution with a lot of different faculty fellows um, and host a number of different events that are on uh, an array of topics, but I would say that the ones that are really interesting to me are kind of two um, distinct areas. One is a real focus on nature-based solutions and climate change mitigation, adaptation, resilience, and so on. Just looking at how where that conversation is going right now, I think it's one of the most exciting conversations about cities of, you know, really thinking about how cities can uh, focus on harnessing the the nature that they have or thinking about um, how to adjust um, you know everything from the you know the city streets to their natural environment um, and really orienting it around addressing things like extreme heat or flooding or hurricanes other natural disasters I think it's just super interesting and exciting to see what's happening around the world and also here in the US there are a number of leading cities um, I think, you know, uh, Miami has a chief heat officer um, and I've been following a lot of what's been going on in Phoenix and in LA and things like that. Um, So that's um, one side of it. The other is that we cover a lot of how cities have been responding to the pandemic, um, especially around state and local finance and economic development issues. We have a series that's called Special Briefing, uh, which also actually has a podcast and we bring in experts from around the country to talk about different um, really interesting issues from last, our most recent one was about the future of downtowns, which um, you know has been a huge issue since the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, but you know, just charting this, this progress over the past three years has been um, fascinating. So those are some of the things that we're really focused on. Um, and that, you know, those are some of the topics that really interest me in, in the discussion about cities these days. You know, you're talking about the post-pandemic, you know, you know, and you wrote this book before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But there is there have been conversations that because the pandemic has changed the way we work, we could actually be in a situation where we go back to a more decentralized city. And I think much of what you've been talking about throughout the interview isn't only about rethinking housing, but it's also about the patterns of our cities, right? You're talking about denser cities, more walkable cities. You're talking about, um, you know, compact urban forms. So, I mean, in this kind of, do you imagine that we'll become more decentralized? And if so, do you think that it will be harder to make an, an argument against the single family house since now we don't need to be, let's say, theoretically commuting to work as often as we we did in the past? Right. It, it definitely remains to be seen. Uh, I think that all these patterns are still very much in flux. It's only been three years, and I just am very intrigued to see where we are a decade from now. 
I would put money on this idea of the 15-minute city, um, sort of a more dense node that could exist in an urban or suburban space that is going to be the sort of prize of that particular, you know, area, right? So it would be that area where you can, you know, walk to your daily amenities, where you can uh, you know, your housing, your, whether you're, it's your office or it's just, you know, the place where you do co-working, what have you. Um, but these kinds of communities that are really, um, much more equipped to help people live their sort of best lives. Um, I think those are going to be what's, what's, really desirable in the future. Um, and I think that we'll continue to always have other kinds of uh, housing and communities. Um, but because, you know, frankly, those kinds of 15 minute cities are oftentimes they're not built with affordability in mind, right? So unless we are able to, to build those kinds of nodes and provide for affordable housing and so forth, um, they might end up being kind of more the luxury um, I, I still wouldn't count out cities uh, and downtowns. I, I, you know, I definitely think that like, the pendulum is swinging in a different way in Philadelphia. Actually, more people are living downtown than they were pre-pandemic. So um, I think that there are many ways in which the urban form actually has uh, has potential to, to even go further um, in a post-pandemic world because it's, you know, for some people to decouple the work and the quality of life issues, um, it could be, you know, if you have a great quality of life in a city, people still enjoy living there and without even having to work there. Yeah. Well, but I think in listening to your response, I can imagine that um, at least let's let's try to think optimistically that you're you're arguing maybe, or not arguing, but you're describing a polycentric city. Um, rather than a decentralized city. And I think that's very, very different. So the polycentric city might allow you to live outside of the urban core, but that particular, let's say, neighborhood would would be retrofitted to have all of the amenities that you would want um, to improve your quality of life. You would want to be able to walk and maybe have a coffee. You would want to be able to, you know, go to the park um, and, and have your home nearby. So I think you know, you're offering the model of the polycentric city rather than the decentralized city. And I find that to be uh, optimistic. Um, so we're coming to the last, you know, couple minutes of the interview, last five minutes or so. So I was just curious, what are you writing about now? Are you working on a new book? Yes. Yeah, so I am. And I started to work on a nonfiction book about the post-pandemic city, but taking us back to the earlier conversation about novel writing, I actually, I started to think about it in, in a fiction context. Um, instead of uh, trying to write out, you know, my predictions of what's going to happen in the post-pandemic city, or what does this all mean for cities and so forth, really trying to think about a couple of characters who are navigating this kind of post-pandemic urban situation um, in, and thinking about a story that goes along with it. So I am, you know, I would say about halfway done with it and we'll see where I am uh, at by the end of this year. But it's that's my goal is to kind of finish this novel this year and and see what happens with it. Um, but that is definitely been, you know, something I'm now t over 20 years since I was in grad school at this point. And I guess I'm 20 years since I was in grad school. And um, it's something that I've 
always wanted to do, but really never um, had the luxury and, and space and time to do it. And I feel like I'm now um, at a point where I really want to make it happen. So that's what I'm working on. Um, and and I would say that I still have a lot of other nonfiction topics that I'm really interested in, like I was talking about earlier, particularly around um, climate adaptation and cities. I think that's a really um, exciting topic. Yeah, and hearing you talk about this, I think I will have to have you back uh, in a future episode <laughs> so I can hear about all of your thoughts mm -hmm. on climate change and adaptation and mitigation, which, of course, being in Miami, I feel we're at ground zero of climate change. So I need to make sure to invite you back uh, for that discussion. Um, so maybe just to conclude, Diane, I'm asking all of uh, my guests a kind of simple, straightforward question, because I do believe it's important to have examples of what we think are great cities. Um, and so what is your favorite city and why? Okay, so I'm going to cheat and have two cities. <laughs> and uh, because I, my favorite city is Paris, uh, and I feel like that's just, you know, so cliche, but it's a beautiful city with amazing architecture, fantastic food, the river, the light, um, the culture there, um, the, you know, it's urban design it cannot be beat. Uh, and and really the way that it has reimagined its urban design. I, I lived there, studied abroad, and then went back a decade later and um, seeing the way that it's been reimagined with its pedestrian biking infrastructure is amazing. Um, I will just add my other favorite city. I want to give a plug for Philadelphia, where I live, um, which is that, um, you know, I've often thought, like, could I move somewhere else, especially with this whole remote work um, era. And I just think that Philadelphia offers a tremendous value in terms of amazing architecture um, and great livability uh, and convenience to being very close to DC and New York, all of that. So I really, um, I love living here and I've been here for 15 years and so far. Those are two great, great choices. And thank you, Diana. It's been really a pleasure um, to be able to speak with you. And for all of you listening, please uh, join us next week where I will have Rahul Merotra. He's the chair of the urban uh, planning and urban design department at Harvard and the principal of RMA Architects based in Mumbai and Boston. He'll be talking to us about the uh, Kinetic City, uh, which is essentially his uh, recent book, on the Indian city. Um, and I think it will prove to be incredibly interesting. So please join us next week. Follow us on the On Cities podcast if you found this to be interesting and share that um, with everyone. Thanks again, Diana. The best of luck to you on your novel. And I look forward to having you again on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 